The best caregivers care for themselves. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Chaplain Mary E. Johnson, Assistant Professor of Oncology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Chaplain Johnson has provided spiritual support to patients, their loved ones, and staff at the Mayo Clinic for nearly 30 years. Chaplain Johnson, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here. What do you like most about your job? Well, I come to work every day, and I don't think about it as a job. It's a privilege. I get to sit at people's feet and listen to their stories, and if I'm fortunate and the winds are blowing in the right direction, a relationship begins. And often the relationship begins in the midst of a very trying time for them as they're in the midst of a health crisis. So what I appreciate most about my job is the sheer privilege of it. What is the most challenging part of your job? Well, I think that uh, working in a high-acuity environment like a hospital, the most challenging part of the job here is not to take it for granted and to never forget what it is we are called to do here. When I do staff development presentations, I ask people what they hear when they're at a social gathering and they tell people what they do for a living. And these people might be nurses in a neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, They might be hospice workers. They might be uh, anesthesiologists. And, And I ask them that question because we come here every day and we work with people who are in many times desperate situations. And I think it's it's easy for us to actually forget what it is that we do because we get so used to it. So the most challenging part of our job, and I'll speak for myself here, the most challenging part of hospital ministry for me is to remember that these are extraordinary times in people's lives. And even though I've been in these clinical situations many, many times, this is a first time for a lot of people. And uh, it's really good to just remember this is a wonderful opportunity that we have here to to journey with people through some of the most amazing times in their lives. Tell us about the most common reasons doctors turn to you for support, and what do you tell them? Clearly, the most common reason that physicians turn to me and turn to my chaplaincy colleagues for support is when they have not met their own expectations. Either they have not met the expectations of the culture of medicine, which is to cure and to make better and to eliminate suffering simply because of the circumstance of the situation, or they haven't met their personal expectations about being able to most of the time eliminate suffering. I think the way that these values are inculcated in the culture of medicine, we're really oftentimes setting physicians up to be more than any human person can be. And so we spend a fair amount of time here listening to people sort these things out for themselves and offering them reassurance and counsel about the role that humanity can actually really play in their ability to be in good, useful relationships with their patients. What do you advise healthcare professionals about self-care when working with terminally ill patients? That is a really good question because I think sometimes chaplains are the worst at self-care. And the reason for that is because our work is so difficult to evaluate. And so we have this sort of sometimes capricious, not very clear way of saying, yes, our work is finished or it isn't or job well done or job not well done. 
So we're probably in one of the worst <laughs> positions, but we have a role in the support of our colleagues on the multidisciplinary team. And here at Mayo, part of our mission statement in the Department of Chaplain Services is to care for the soul of the institution. That's what that means, is is we really need to be cognizant of the needs of our colleagues on the multidisciplinary team. And so we advise as issues and challenges present themselves. I think one of the main things that we encourage people to do is to take care of one another. And one example of that would be to notice and to compliment the job well done. Another example would be to notice and to acknowledge the difficult task once it is finished. When things get so busy, these these things, these simple gestures fall by the wayside, but they can really do a lot as an investment in a multidisciplinary team and the cohesion of the team when you know that your colleagues are really pulling for you. So really a lot of what chaplains do is to help to build up the team. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Chaplain Mary E. Johnson, Assistant Professor of Oncology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Chaplain Johnson, how do you cope with taking care of so many dying patients and their loved ones? I think we need to acknowledge that being in a medical environment, different disciplines in the medical environment have different goals. And as you can imagine, for people in ministry, death is often not the enemy, and suffering is not the end of the story. So persons coming to the end of life for chaplains, this is not a failure, or this is not perceived to be a failure like it might be for some other disciplines in healthcare. Our job is to be with people wherever they are, and a job well done is faithfulness at that task. So coping with persons who are dying is the same as coping with anyone else along the trajectory of healthcare. We need to be faithful to them. When it becomes difficult to be faithful to them, it's very, very important for me and for my colleagues to get some help, to get some counsel, to be able to have at least one other person in our life with whom we can be completely honest and we can discuss our concerns. And, you know, sometimes things come up. The person in my care might remind me of someone in my personal life for whom I have very strong feelings. Or perhaps uh, the person in my care may have had a long, long journey of suffering. And I think, again, people in healthcare sometimes forget the cost of witnessing other people's suffering on us, the cost to us. So it's important for me and for my colleagues to keep these things before us. And it's really a day-to-day thing. No two days are the same, and it's very important to be honest with ourselves about our own needs. How do you help patients and loved ones forgive one another? That's another great question. Forgiveness is a very common task for people as the end of life is approaching. Ira Byock wrote a wonderful book about the final messages that people need to exchange near the end of life. And two of those messages, almost half of the messages that he's talking about have to do with forgiveness. I forgive you, please forgive me. This is a way of bringing closure to a relationship and acknowledging the totality of a relationship that may have involved hopes and dreams, may have involved failures, betrayals, hurts, 
joys, the whole gamut. And if we're going to consider a relationship as, as closing because of the end of mortal life, it only follows that people will need to forgive or could need to forgive and be forgiven. So the first part of this task, as opportunities present themselves, is to normalize this process and to suggest to people who, by listening, may be discerning they're struggling with either the need to forgive someone else or to be forgiven, is to facilitate that process and to help them move forward through that process. In my own approach to this particular opportunity in patient care, I tend to think that people know in their own hearts when this is the need, and but they don't always know how to do it. So how do we help patients is to listen to the true nature of their need first and then to facilitate a process of forgiveness. Now, depending upon their religious background or their spiritual beliefs, they may need to ritualize this in one way or another. And some religious bodies, church organizations have ways of ritualizing forgiveness through sacraments or rituals that actually give persons uh, an opportunity to include the divine or the power greater than themselves in this process. What advice do you have for people who are grieving? You know what I find myself telling people who are grieving more often than not is please give yourself a chance to do what you need to do to grieve. In this culture in the West, we have almost institutionalized grief. And if you look across the board at company policies about uh, funeral leave, uh, you will notice that we're giving people days to weeks to do the initial grief that they need to do after the loss of a loved one, for instance. And then we want them back on the job. We want them functioning fully. And that is such a fallacy. We know that a lot of grief processes take at least as long as the relationship itself. And and I think the conventional wisdom about grief is after a couple of years have passed, if you're not doing as well as you think you should be doing, then you should seek some uh, professional mental health support. Because there are people for whom grief is complicated and takes longer for one reason or another. And it's perfectly understandable that perhaps a professional could help facilitate that process for them. But I think bottom line on advice for people for grieving is give yourself a chance to grieve. Give yourself the time and put yourself in the relationships that support that process. We all have people in our lives who can stand to see us when we're sad and weeping and people in our lives who can't, and they'll try to talk us out of it or humor us out of it. Uh, I think it's important for us, at least for a period of time as human persons, all to have the chance to grieve and to grieve well. And sometimes grieving well involves time and it involves a supportive environment. What do you tell people who are struggling with guilt? I have not met a person who isn't struggling with guilt as the end-of-life approaches, or I should amend that. I should say I've never met a person who isn't experiencing some guilt. Again, a very normal part of coming to the end of a, uh, of life and trying to bring closure to a relationship. It's part of being human to wonder if we've we've done well or to wonder if we haven't failed someone. Again, this is a process that needs to be normalized. Uh, Guilt is a normal part of of grief. It's a normal part of anticipatory grief, which is grief that happens actually before the loss occurs. When you learn that you're coming to the end of life, your loved ones don't start grieving at your funeral. They start grieving the minute they get the bad news. So 
it's important if people are seeking our assistance with guilt to try to understand what it is they're struggling with. And if you're a loved one or a friend who's with someone who's struggling with guilt, sometimes they need a professional person to help them with that. Or sometimes they're going to choose you because you're the safest person in their life. Guilt is uh, is something that renders us vulnerable, and it, it's not easy to share that with another person. So I think it's important for people who feel guilty to know that that's pretty normal. Chaplain Johnson, thank you so much for joining us to discuss end-of-life care. It's been a pleasure, Susan, and good luck in your work. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library of on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening.